Ladies and gentlemen, welcome or welcome back to the JKWD podcast. Where we have a we have a it's a bit of a different type of interview today with with Bill Larue, uh, my my former colleague at Advanced Local. Uh, Kelvin didn't uh, didn't wind up saying much uh, during our discussion, so I, I better start by saying, "Hey, Kelvin, how you doing?" <laughs> I didn't say much, did I? I didn't. Know. I'm doing great, though. Thank you. It was a, uh, it was a, a long interview and a, uh, but very insightful. But hey, I'm fine. You know, I'm just, I'm still here in upstate New York. It's not snowing today, of course. Sun's not really shining today, but you know, it's been all week. It's been a great week. So Good. Hopefully well, hopefully that, uh, hopefully that snow is just done for the year. I mean, it is. Mid- yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. I know that. I know about that Mother's Day storm, but yeah, hopefully. hopefully. <laughs> nah, we don't. Uh, we don't want to do that again. We're good. We're good. So, how about you? What's going on in your world? Um, things are good here. Uh, you know, picking stuff up, putting it down, running a little bit, reading a lot, and uh, speaking of reading, we're brought to you by the first thing I read every day: <laughs> Vitamin K Daily. Get yourself four weeks free at vitaminkdaily.com. Get yourself a daily dose of positive from the Prince of Positive himself. Wake up every day, Monday through Friday, with a little dose of awesome in your inbox. Four weeks free after that, just $24.95 a year. Get in on that grandfathered rate before it doubles or triples or... (laughs) One of these days. One of these days. Vitaminkdaily.com gets you four weeks free. <laughs> All right. So by way of introduction, because I don't think we did any of that, <laughs> William LaRue, uh, Bill, is, is a former colleague of mine. He's just uh, finished a book called A Stranger Killed Katie. This is about a, a murder that happened in the town of Potsdam, New York, at Clarkson University in the mid-1980s. Katie was about to be a freshman at the university and and she had a just a random encounter was killed and then uh, the accused killer was was caught at at the uh, scene as it was happening and uh, it's a story about Katie and her family as victims of the crime and a bit about the killer who is up uh, for parole every two years since 2009. In fact, if you're hearing this, the day it comes out, uh, he's probably in a parole hearing this week. Uh, so, you know, we don't, we don't even know the the outcome of that, but if the the past holds up then he'll be back there in two years rather than out but who knows uh, that's the point of having a parole hearing right uh, but <laughs> what they yes, say. this is this is very current event uh, that may uh, it may have a new chapter uh, by next week but may not and in general we do, we don't spend you know, we we spend a little bit of time on the book in and out, but really we talk about the process of making books and of, you know, picking your subjects and 
yeah. telling stories and passions and missions and yeah, all that kind of stuff. So is it, you know, it's a little different, a little less uh, of our you know, self-development path that that we're on. But I know that we are both working on books, and we talk about that a little bit. And we both, and that a lot of y'all out there listening are considering books or writing books and we delve into process a little bit. So I'm going to shut up and we're going to play some music and then you're going to hear us talking to Bill. Then it, then it looked like. Are you there? I am here. Oh, cool. You are here. All right. How you doing? I'm doing great. How good. about you? So far, so good. Do you two know each other? I mean, I don't believe we've met. You live like 15 minutes apart. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. Well, howdy, neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to meet you. Jazz keeps saying all these good things about you. So, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah you, I wouldn't trust anything he says. Yeah. <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. <laughs> Been 17 years I've been messing with him. So, wow. Well, there you go. So, Bill, how, how is um, semi retirement treating you? Great. I've been able to spend time writing, which is something I've wanted to do. And mm-hmm. um, I don't think I would have been able to get this book done. By now, if I had, if I was still working yeah. um, full time, awesome. tell us about the decision to write the book because I know that's something that a lot of people who who are listening, yeah. And this isn't your first book, but uh, so you know, why why write books, especially while you're retired, and uh, and how do you pick your subjects? Um. I look for stories about people, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. That's kind of one thing. And in my my uh, book I wrote, 2005, was my father's, my late father's memoirs. I had interviewed him over the years and taped interviews with him about his experience on the front lines in the Korean War. And uh, so I um, I put that together. Uh, after he had passed away and, and put it together in a book form. Um, and the second, the, the book I wrote a couple of years after that was about it was also a memoir of a, uh, of a pilot on the Panama canal. Uh, I had seen him lecture at a Disney cruise and I was very, um, he reminded me a lot of my dad and uh, even the same first name, Kenneth. Um, and, um, I just was fascinated. So I went to Amazon. I said that he's got to have a book. You know, he was just this wonderful storyteller of, you know, his adventures, uh, you know, guiding ships through the canal and, and they were funny and, and, uh, and touching and all that kind of thing. And he didn't have one. So I went up to him afterwards and asked him if I could write a book 
uh, or if I could interview him. And then eventually I presented the idea of doing a book. And uh, um, so that was the second. And again, this was just, you know, somebody who was an ordinary person who who found himself caught up in, in um, you know, the transition of the Panama Canal from the Panam- uh, from Americans to the Panamanians and, and how that was pretty amazing. I mean, there were, you know, pretty dangerous times in, in Panama. And then this last book that I'm currently, uh, I had just recently published was a story about a, um, a person from Syracuse uh, who was murdered on the Clarkson University campus in Potsdam. Uh, and my reason for doing that, that we can get into that, but it's, I'm from Potsdam originally. So I knew the, the person who was the accused killer and, um, I was, I've been for years, I've been very, I've been following the case pretty closely and, and, uh, decided the time was right to, to put something together about, um, not only the the killer but more importantly the family and the impact that this had on the the family of the of the victim um and and their efforts now to fight parole for the for the killer yeah i yeah two things that i found interesting about the book uh, one you know we wait till the end to find out that you you did tell us about your personal connection with it which I think really, really made it even more human than than it already was. I mean, it's a, it's a very human story, but we don't often get. Uh, here's how I really know about this, and here's how right. I was kind of peripherally attached to it. Mm. Uh, you know, this this happened kind of on the periphery of my circle. Which, you know, you, you don't you don't see when Ken Burns does a, does a documentary series, you know, he does a great job telling the story, but it's just a story. Uh, This is a story that you're nearby. Mm -hmm. The other thing is so many of, so many books about, you know, so many true crime stories, you know, whether they're uh, documentaries or books or, uh, you know, or a limited series or whatever, they focus on the killers. And you know, we have this kind of odd fascination with, well, I don't think like that, but I but I wonder. And this really doesn't. I mean, obviously it involves the it, it involves the accused killer, but uh, you know, as it has to, but it really does focus on on the victim and her family. And yeah, I think that's, you know, in a sense beyond, it wasn't just a decision to somehow balance things out. It, it was really a, the, the more intriguing story, um, more intriguing angle on, on this murder is, is the family story. Um, here it is 30, 35 years after Katie Huelka was murdered on the Clarkson campus is still this case still resonates with the family, not only in the in the their their lasting um, sadness over her loss and anger and all that, but that the fact that uh, every two years the killer is up for parole, 
And uh, so even though it's a story, you know, three decades old, it has, it is continuing to, to um, roll out these days. And, and to me, that made, um, you know, that made this story um, much more important to tell the story of the victim's family and what they were going through. Um, the other thing is that the, the uh, killer, uh, his name is Brian McCarthy. I did contact him in prison and he didn't want to cooperate at all in writing of the book. And uh, um, there would have probably been a little bit more about his thoughts on this, but um, if I had, but it still would have focused primarily on, on her, on Katie and her family. Yeah, and and it is really salient right now because I, th- I think right about now is the time he's up for parole again. Yeah, I think it's April nineteenth, uh, the week of April nineteenth. He's scheduled for parole. It's usually a Tuesday or Wednesday. Actually, and this will actually come out on that Monday. So, yeah. Uh, so this will be, it'll probably be the twentieth or the twenty-first of April. Usually by that Friday, the parole board um, informs him and the family of the decision sometimes it goes to the following week monday um and uh so so we'll know hopefully within a couple of weeks what the what the decision is and you know it's it would i'm sure very heartbreaking to the family if if he's released um and that's there's always that possibility um and as anyone reading the book would wonder how that could occur but there is definitely a a move not only in New York state, but, you know, in a, in a lot of the states around the country to make it, um, to, to pe- move people out of prisons that they believe are no longer a threat. And, um, the book is really a, a look at another perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, this being you know, crime having taken place 30 something years ago, he'd be in his fifties now and, uh, probably nearing 60 and, Right. Yeah. By New York's, you know, according to New York and, and some of the supporters of of easing the parole rules, he's considered elderly at 58. I think he is now. Mm-hmm. So um, which, you know, considering I'm older than that, I don't necessarily look at myself <laughs> as elderly. But <laughs> the idea being that you're not, you know, you're not a threat anymore once you get to be past 55 um i'm not sure that that would be an accurate assessment i think uh, they have to look at the complete picture of him and you know what mm-hmm. what he uh, uh what he's been doing in prison and and uh the nature of the crime well i find myself at a loss i mean i am rarely without words um, so this is this whole thing is very very fascinating to me, and at the moment I don't think I can actually imagine being in either position. So it's like just just listening and uh, and and how that plays out. I, I unfortunately didn't didn't read the book, but uh, it's it's a it's a page turner. It is. Uh, I actually read it on my phone in under a week. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the phone, um, yeah, yeah. The Bill was kind enough to send me a a, a Kindle uh, 
Ah, okay. Kindle download, and I, I sat there, you know, reading it on a on a screen at a time, and and it, I still got it done in in under a so week. This is actually a recent, so, a very recent book. Very recent book. Yep. Yeah, it was it was uh, released January, um, and uh, one of the reasons that I did want to, you know, I want the timing of it was because I knew that uh, Brian McCarthy was up for parole in April, and um, I thought. You know, if there was a time to, you know, I didn't want to, you know, let's say he's released and, mm-hmm. you know, parole. And then suddenly the book is, you know, I've got to write another two or three more chapters. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it, uh, so, I mean, and if he's released now, I mean, it, it clearly is, uh, um, it's some, you know, I'm going to have to, to add an epilogue to it. And mm-hmm. even if, you know, not at least say, you know what the thing is, what the status is. Um, yeah, at least uh, at least the Kindle version will be easy to update. It'll be tough to. Uh, yeah, well, tough to recall know. the. Uh, <laughs> it'll be tough to recall all the all the hard copies out there. Well, yeah, and and I think it would just uh, you know only the future ones that are shipped. Uh, yeah, would be affected by that. Let's go back to process, since I think that's what a lot of people will get out of this conversation. Uh, where's the germ? Like uh, at the the beginning, you know, you you said with the other two books, with the memoirs, that uh, it started with conversations that you taped, and yeah, I I you know, like you know the journalistic process. I understand you you know, you get miles and miles and miles of tape or. <laughs> Uh, if you're recording on digital, you get hours and hours and hours, and you just pare that down and you set up however the storyline goes. But where do you where do you start? You know, a, a journey of a journey of 200 pages has to start with a with a sentence. So yeah, it's um, it definitely has been each book I've written, I've learned how to do that better. Um, it comes down to a large extent to organization. Um, The first step is deciding to do the book. And in this case, I contact this. This is a stranger called Katie. A stranger killed Katie. I didn't even know the own name of my book. Stranger killed Katie. So I went and talked to the family, got their agreement that they would cooperate with the book. Mm -hmm. And once I did that, I'd already done some research before then just to sort of see how much was out there and whether there seemed to be um, enough meat on this story for a full for a book. Once I got their um, blessing for this project, I started to do research uh, in much more detail and, and obtain court records. I basically looked for everything you can find. And everything was digitized, uh, and I organized on my computer into folders. Every every document, everything was dated in the file name, so that they would all this chronologically. Um, and it was really important to to you know. So I had folders that said, "Here's all the news clips," and every news clip had a date that it appeared, a brief headline, and and the and the publication it was in. Uh, and I, you know, I, for the, the court records, I obtained 
hundreds and hundreds of pages of court records with the transcripts and everything was similarly organized that way. Um, and uh, I obtained the original police file from, from the village of Potsdam. Um, and I went through and basically got everything I could on that and organized that. And then also then I started, you know, at the same time I was doing interviews with family members, um, friends of Katie, the police officers. I tried to track down every police officer who was involved in the investigation. Uh, and I talked to the person who was the district attorney at the time uh, and contacted, you know, the university and just. I would say I contacted or tried to contact at least 30 to 40 people. And I think about 20 of them granted me interviews. Um, and all of those interviews were recorded, transcribed. Um, and I had that. So everything really came down to just getting it organized, getting it in a, in a, in a, in a fashion that when I started to sit down and write, I would um, not only would I have got this sort of a rough outline of, of what I wanted based on having reviewed all this, but also it was easy enough to, to find what I wanted so I could organize, let's say, all the material I needed for the first chapter, um, I, would, I could put into one place and uh, organize it even as I'm as I'm writing. So it, it all, it all comes down to, to um, really understanding where you want to go with this and also organizing all that material into a form that you can do. And then of course, later, you know, there are a lot of editing and changes and stuff, but to me that the, the writer's block that a lot of people go through a lot is because they're just overwhelmed by all the material and uh by sorting through and organizing it the way i did um it took away a lot of that i really was able to to write in a fashion that uh you know at least get the first draft down um and then just edit over and over and over until it it really was in a form i wanted and when you get the writing done, are you about halfway there? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I, I would say I seriously started writing in August of 2019. And I had the first draft ready in June of 2020. And I didn't have the final, really the final tweak until January of this year, just before you know, I published it and it, and there was revisions made right up to the last minute where, you know, I had the proofs of the book and I'm still finding little things here and there. And, and of course I had other people and, uh, you know, professional editors who were looking at it also, but, um, <clears throat> so really the editing process itself took six, seven months once I had the first draft. Wow. So I, I'm a nosy guy, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't have that kind of passion. What uh, you're a journalist. Uh, uh, Josh is a journalist. Uh, sounds good to most people. But what does that really mean for you? What is your driving force 
for putting together a story like this? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think ego probably plays a little bit in there. I think all journalists are, you know, we love to tell stories. We love to be the person who, you know, I can remember as a kid, uh, and I'm old enough to to remember when uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I happened to be home that day. I was six years old. I must have had a medical appointment or something. And I'm sitting in front of the TV, and all of a sudden, whatever I was watching cut out, and the announcers are coming on saying that the president has been shot. And I remember going, after I would listen to this a little bit, going into the kitchen and saying to my mom, Mom, and she's like, yeah. And I said, uh, they say on the TV that the president's been shot. And, you know, mom, being moms who kind of, you know, everything kids is like, okay, okay, you know, her total reaction was one of one of running out to the TV and, and finding out what was going on and then running back and calling my father at work, you know, and I was so proud of myself at the time that, you know, I had, I had, I was able to tell something as, that somebody else thought was really important. Um, and, and if, if I look back at, you know, when I first, my, I mean, that would have been the first time I was a reporter, essentially, you know, passing on news to somebody else. So I think that there's there's that aspect of it. And I think um, to me, I the writing process is the hardest part for me. I love the research. I just love learning about something in so much depth mm-hmm. that, you know, it becomes a part of you. Um, and that's a difference between let's say being a daily newspaper or web reporter and, and writing a book is, you know, you might, you could be writing two or three stories a day. If you're lucky, you might have a few days to work on a feature story, uh, but then you're done with it and you move on. And when you're writing a book like this, I I spent two and a half years on this and, and doing something pretty much every day on it. And so um I think that is the appeal also of, of at least for writing a book is that you can really master a subject and 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 uh, the process of of learning things and then being able to tell people what you, what you learned. I mean, what a book does essentially is everything in the book I have is something that anybody could have done. If they wanted, you know, if they got the cooperation of, you know, the people to be interviewed, they can go and they could have gathered all this information. Um, when when somebody buys a book, I'm doing all that work for them. And uh, to me, that's a that's the other f- fun part of this is that, you know, somebody else picking up the book and reading it and just sharing in that that uh, uh, being being uh co-opted in a sense by the story and and you know i remember talking to one of the katie's sisters after she read the um read the book and she said she just it, it just continued to haunt her um you know once she finished it obviously she was related and so it's probably more but i've i've gotten that reaction from other people too is that it's not just something you read and then forget you know, it, it stays with you. And and outside of telling the story, I mean, obviously it touched you in some way outside of telling the story, 
what is the impact you hoped to have with this book? I wanted, you know, and that's, that's something that I kind of, I made very clear to the family uh, early on is that I did not want to be an advocate for their point of view, mm-hmm. but I wanted to explain to the reader why, why they believe the way they did that, that, that uh, Brian McCarthy shouldn't be released. Um, I didn't, uh, um, you know, I'm hope, I hope in a book like this, that, that it can illuminate a subject that's not really talked about as much, which is mm-hmm. victims and the victim's rights. And also, particularly in this case, the parole process. I think I did a lot of research. I didn't really find a lot uh, examining the parole process uh, in a, in, in a, particularly in a single case like this. There's, there's books written about the parole process, um, but um, to, to look in depth on, on how that works, one of the things that, that people have told me is that they had no idea you know, how parole in New York worked. And, and, uh, you know, so that's a, an aspect of the book that goes beyond this particular story. If, if people can feel like, you know, that it's, it's illuminated this, uh, this one issue for them. And, and, um, I, I think definitely people who read the book will come away feeling more sympathy for the family than they do for, um, the convicted killer, mm-hmm. but um, it was it was more my goal to just just to share that story and let let the reader decide, um, you know their 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 point of view on it. Now you said you you uh, you knew the killer. Yes. So I mean, are we talking friends? Are we talking about just an acquaintance? Or you you just knew who he was? He. Uh, I grew up um, just outside of Potsdam and uh, the Brian McCarthy was five is five years younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, his family lived about a half a mile down the road from where I lived. We lived in a rural stretch, a lot of cows, <laughs> and a lot of, uh, of hay fields. And in fact, I worked at a local yeah. farm there while I was growing up. And uh, he actually babysat for his family, him and his siblings, one time in the 70s when they needed a last-minute babysitter. His family went to the same church as I did. He went to the same school I went to. Um, so I knew him. I didn't know him. as He was not a friend. He was right. more older. But I knew the family somewhat and you know, knew that they had a real good reputation in the community. They were really, really nice family. His grandmother was my sixth grade teacher. So, you know, if you get a sense of that, it's a real small community where everybody kind of knows everybody. Um, And so when I found out back in 1986 that he was arrested, I was pretty shocked. And I think for years, up until I started looking at this case a lot more, my my major interest was trying to figure out why someone from such a good family could do such an awful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I started looking at, you know, the research materials even more, I realized that, that the real story was, was Katie and Katie's family. Cool. 
So that had the case been kind of gnawing at you for 32 years while you were waiting to uh, write this book? I don't think, uh, I think the, the book part came, you know, three or four years ago, the idea of doing this, but definitely it was something in my mind. I'm like, you know, the murder up in the Potsdam area is not something very common. And certainly I've never known anybody who was convicted of murder that, you know, prior to the, to the act. So, um, it was, it was something that stuck with me a lot. And I, you know, you kind of check in over the years, obviously I followed the original criminal proceedings and his guilty plea. Um, and then in 2009, he came up for parole. And I think that was sort of when I began to sort of thinking that maybe there's something I could write about this. I was still working at the Syracuse Post Standard then. I was a copy editor, but I thought, you know, maybe there was something I could do, but it really didn't fit into, you know, someone else at the paper wrote about it. And uh, and then, uh, you know, two or three years ago, as I was looking into this, um, the attorney for the family had written a blog post in which he had talked about what Brian McCarthy had said at the parole hearings. And suddenly I realized, you know, if not before then, but that, that the real story here was Katie, because he was saying some things that his parole process that, I mean, basically was blaming Katie for, um, for what happened and uh, claiming that she had instigated this confrontation. Um, and that was clearly not what occurred. And, and he was trying to convince, I think the parole board that, that he was, um, he was kind of a victim on this thing too. Wow. Based on the, you know, story you tell in the book uh, that seems highly unlikely. <laughs> um, how, how do you how do you keep emotion out of that kind of writing? I don't think you can completely. There was a chapter in the book where we, you know, Katie was. Um, yeah, I can just give you the thumbnail sketch of what happened. She was walking back from a night downtown mm-hmm. um, on her way back to campus, and and she was uh, attacked along a dimly lit path next to the ice hockey arena at Clarkson University. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled. She did not die immediately, um, and she was she was discovered and, and brought to the hospital, and they kept her alive for three days. But after three days, she, she was declared brain dead. Mm-hmm. And she was in the ICU at the hospital in in Watertown, uh, New York. And the time I, as I'm writing this chapter on um, on Katie being in the ICU and all that, my I got a call from my brother-in-law saying that my sister was in the ICU at at uh, at. Uh, University Hospital in Syracuse. Wow. And uh, she, they were going to have to remove her from life support that day. And uh, as I'm in the next, you know, 
had to go and in through that process and and as i'm writing this i come back to writing this it's just i could i could feel in in, in the emotion i could feel that sense of um of loss in in to my core um from my own experience and i didn't even realize that connection until you know later that day i'm thinking you know this was overwhelming to write it and and i realized then that it was in part because i was my emotions of losing my sister was was trans being you know kind of commingled with the mm-hmm. with the story of katie and her own family's decision to remove her from life support wow okay but yeah there was it, it, it's a very um it is a very emotional thing at times to write about things and and um you know years ago when i was a uh when i was a reporter at the post standard i we decided to do a story about the first 100 children who had been um granted wishes through the make a wish foundation Mm -hmm. in syracuse and i ended up contacting or writing to everybody Mm-hmm. every family probably three quarters maybe or more had, had already lost one of the children mm-hmm. and uh many of them agreed to be interviewed and i remember some days i would interview four or five families and all of them with this just heartbreaking story of losing their child um and i remember going home at the end of the night just just devastated um and thinking what did i what did i do you know to to put myself through this and then um but then when it came out it it was um i think the make a wish foundation just found it so helpful and most in all the people that i wrote about were were so grateful that that the story of their child had not been you know lost and and uh that uh that maybe people would understand why the make a wish foundation was so important mm. so that yeah it's common you know on stories like that to 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 begin to feel the emotion that go with it uh you just try to keep it balanced with the idea that um this isn't happening to you in terms of their story um you just want to tell it with empathy and and in a certain degree of of kindness but at the same time you know you have to have some distance there yeah i i find it difficult to imagine sometimes yeah i get emotional even now thinking about it a little bit um because it uh and, and this was something that happened you know the make a wish story was almost 30 years ago so mm. oh wow uh, you know josh uh, usually asked a question of our guests, which he hasn't asked you today. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. Um, Does he ask about like what it was like to work with Josh? (laughs) No, he doesn't. He hasn't asked too many people that one, but I'd be interested in hearing that uh, because he and I've been friends now for, I don't even know how many, was it 10 years? He has to keep count because I, you know, I'm getting old, but he normally asks people who visit with us, um, you know, tell us about your mission. You know, what is your mission and why is that your mission? 
do you have a mission in that sense? Well, I guess so. Um, I had a conversation with someone a couple of years ago when I was starting to work on this book. It was, and I had just retired. I retired from working at for Advanced Local um, back in May of 2019, mm-hmm. and uh, I said to this person who I it was a former coworker at the Post Standard. I said. I don't, I'm retired, but I still want to do something in life that makes a difference. Um, I still want to, I still think there is some of that, you know, it's one of the reasons you get involved as in journalism is that you, you hope to make a a difference in people's lives uh, by telling a story or their story or, you know, putting the spotlight on, on some issue or whatever. And, uh, I think that in my mission is just, you know, is to, um, is to continue to try to, to, to be relevant, you know, to continue to, to try to, um, in my case, to tell stories that I think are important. Um, and also to, um, to continue to try to make a, you know, leave this world a little bit better because you were in it. Cool. Thank you very much. Mr. Sherry, I'll shut up now. (laughs) (laughs) I want to wind back to process for a little bit. Uh, When, uh, when in the course of writing books, do you find we, we, Kelvin and I both have, both have this terrible disease called do-it-yourself-itis. Uh, when, when in the process of, of writing books, do you find that uh, it's time to, it's time to hire some of the work out? Mm, that's a good question. Um, it's a, been an evolving sort of process for me. When I did my first book, I did pretty much everything. Um, <laughs> probably, probably should have, but I it was done. I the idea was it really wanted to do it on the cheap. I knew it wasn't going to sell a lot, and I didn't want to invest, you know, thousands of dollars into into hiring somebody to do any of it. Um, and then, but the second book, I hired somebody to do the cover design. Um, and I, um, I also had someone help me with the interior pages in terms of the design. Um, this last book, I I actually, I uh, had two copy editors, one who was a former post standard copy editor, who was a friend who spent a lot of time helping me and going over it. I also hired a professional copy editor. I hired a a cover designer. I even hired somebody to write, help write the blurb for the back of the book. Um, and I'm sure that there probably there's probably a few other things that along the way. But um, I think when you're, you know, you have to at some point, um, you know, decide whether uh, that this that you're are you going to put do something that um, 
you could feel like, well, I wish I had done this a little better, or if some, if I had, um, was it the best that it could possibly, I could possibly make it. There are some things that you just, you know, I'm not a book designer. I'm not a, you know, uh, you, you, the, you can copy edit your own stuff to some degree, but after a while, you're just not going to pick up everything. So you need, you need to bring in other people if you really are serious about putting out a, uh, a quality book. And in this case, Amazon um, liked what it, the, the well enough, they've given a special designation for having a high quality interior pages with, with, uh, without, you know, errors and uh, with high quality images and that kind of thing. So, um, and that was, oh, that was the other thing. I mean, I hired, I actually uh, licensed photos um, from the Post Standard and the Watertown Daily Times uh, and from Channel 9 in Syracuse. So the book, um, all those images in the book were were professionally shot. And, uh, you know, again, you want, you know, you can do things on the cheap, but uh, it, it, you need to, people need to have confidence when they look at your book that, you know, if if it's, not professionally, if it doesn't look professional, then they're going to have doubts about the quality of, of the writing inside. And um, so it, it all kind of your own credibility is tied up in, you know, creating a, a whole package that looks good. For the hard copy version, is it print on demand or? Yes. Yeah, it's a, uh, um, and with it, I give a little inside baseball here. The um, uh, there's two ways. If if you this this is a self-published book, mm-hmm. I, I established my own. Um, I established my own publishing company essentially. Talk about that a little bit because that was going to be my my next question was going to yeah. be to talk I, about self-published I, versus seeking traditional publishers, etc. Yeah, I I knew that with the um, that I wasn't going to be able to to uh, through a traditional publisher, I wasn't going to be able to to have it published in time before this parole hearing, um, and that was one of the f- factors. Um, I did have a company that w- was willing to to publish it, but they weren't going to be able to do it until this fall, and to me that seemed like a missed opportunity. Um, so with, with a self-published book, um, you just, you're responsible for the, you know, entire thing. Um, and, uh, forgot your question, but, uh, uh, so the, the traditional publisher, if you, the definition is basically, um, someone else, you know, picks out the, does the cover design, does all the layout, they edit it and they, they put it out there and then you're expected to help promote it. And then you get a royalty based on the number of copies sold, that kind of thing. Self-publishing, um, um, there, there's a couple different ways to go with it. One is uh, Amazon now has a, um, they, you can uh, publish your book as an ebook or as a paperback through Amazon. And uh, they will, uh, you basically upload your materials to them and they review it. And if it's acceptable, then they, it goes live. 
Um, you have, you know, you have to upload a, a final version with all the typeset stuff inside and a um, cover design. Um, you have to have even your own ISBN number and everything. Um, and, uh, and once that happens, you know, you set, and I had that set up for my previous book. So, so some of the work was done this time um, already for me. The other aspect is there is a, it's called Ingram, Ingram Spark. Mm -hmm. It's a division of Ingram Publishing. And basically it's a print on demand service where uh, they will supply books to non-Amazon sites. They can also do it for Amazon, but it makes more sense to, to, you know, in the case of Amazon, just go directly to them for the ones that are sold on Amazon. Um, in this case, you basically upload the same things that you, that you provide to Amazon. In this case, they also created a hardcover version um, because uh, libraries and bricks and mortar stores prefer the the hardcover they won't in bricks and mortar stores won't order from amazon and libraries generally don't want paperbacks because after three or four people have read them they're pretty much gone so um so i did as a so i covered tried to cover all the bases um and to have a hardcover version which also is being sold on amazon which basically picks up the the Ingram hardcover version. And then uh, Amazon also has a ebook and a paperback version. Um, you know, one of the things you try to do in that is to, to figure out how much to charge for it. And the, the everybody in the middleman has his, um, gets a piece of the action, so to speak. So the printer, you know, in, let's say when you go a hardcover book with Ingram, Ingram gets, you know, the, the whatever, $10, I think, for every hardcover copy that they print up. And then, you know, if it go the, the retailer that they send it to gets up to 55% of the retail price. So if you set the price of the book too low, you won't get anything. You could actually lose money for every month. So you have to you know, balance that versus if you make it too expensive, then people aren't going to want to buy it. So I set price points on everything that was the lowest I could do um, without losing money um, and without, uh, you know, undercutting my other things. So I think the, on Amazon, you can get the ebook for like nine bucks for 15 bucks for the paperback and 21 or so for the hardcover, um, which is, uh, you know, basically the other thing was that the amount I've invested in, in, in design work and, you know, the cover and all the research and everything just to pay back the costs of, of doing that. Um, you know, that's the other thing is you want to make a little bit so you can, you know, not make it a money losing proposition. Um, you're not going to get, I don't think anybody who self publishes unless they get really lucky or have a big platform or whatever is going to get rich, you know, writing a book. It just, that doesn't happen out there. 
I think it's probably the, also true for most people who are going through a traditional publishing house. If you don't already have a large following, you're not gonna you're not getting rich writing no. books. It's it's gotten it's actually worse that way with traditional publishers these days. I mean, you're down to I think four or five major publishing houses, traditional publishers, um, and uh, yeah, if if you don't have a big social media following or you're not a celebrity or, uh, you know, very, it was pretty much the two categories. You, you won't even, you can't really get an agent to, to, to follow your book. Um, and uh, so, you know, you either go with a, um, a small independent, you know, publisher who um, would not have the resources to promote it much anyways, or just self-publish it yourself. And the great thing about self-publishing these days is that you can put out a product that is indistinguishable from what a traditional publisher would do. Um, the days of the sort of cheap vanity press that existed there up until maybe 10 or 15 years ago, doesn't, it, you know, that it isn't necessary to do that. And that I would, I would say that um, for most people, particularly if you've got any kind of skill set at all, that you know, self-publishing is probably the way to go. I still have hope. I'm 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 getting there. I'm working on it. <laughs> Josh, do you have? Do you guys have books that you're working on? I've been. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, he's got a. Um, yeah, I've got well, to. I'll, I'll, I'll let him tell his story, but yeah. You tell yours first, Kevin. Well, mine is I've been writing, I've been doing a, a daily daily motivational uh, email for like the last 10 and a half years. Uh, so the first thing I want to do really is to get the best of those and put them in a, in a book so I can, you know, sell that. Um, I missed the deadline of, you know, having it done before my mom passed away. So, but I don't want to miss the every, you know, I need to get it done before I pass away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I but think I've got a, I've got a following on there is that people who would like that book. Cause right now it's just an email thing. So that's mine. And for the most part, Josh has got a little deeper, a little deeper goal for his. I'm, I'm working on a, uh, on a book that kind of combines the neurobiology of, kindness and creativity and happiness with I an mean, argument and instruction manual for getting more of them in your life. <laughs> so it's fair, fairly thoroughly researched. I've got a, I've got my stack of index cards here and uh, hoping to finish up the research in the second quarter of this year and then really start to get to writing it the second half of the year. And if we can yeah. get a, we can start, you know, hopefully, hopefully for launch late 2022. But if it extends into 2023, then you know, I, I understand that. The hardest part, I think, you know, if if you've got a a job, particularly a full time job, is is you know, you you've got to put your main focus on that, and then at the end of the day. And a toddler to go with it. Yeah. 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 And the day before, you know, then you go, okay, now I've got to, you know, put in two or three hours now writing and, uh, 
you know, I did that with the two books before Katie, I was working full time and I would, I would, well, my, my shift was 6 PM to 3 AM and at 3 AM I'd be absolutely exhausted. And, uh, cause I had a demanding boss. And so I went and, uh, I would, sometimes I would go to sleep for four or five hours and then I'd get up and then maybe around, uh, you know, nine in the morning, I'd work from nine to noon, um, writing. And then I go back to sleep, uh, until just before I would, uh, um, you know, later in the afternoon. And so, uh, it was really, a, and then on weekends I would put in, you know, try to put in five to seven hours of work. And, and it wasn't just writing. It was a lot of it was like, I talked about organizing it. Um, a lot of it was, let's even, I would organize and then I would suborganize. That's a word where you would take, if I knew I was doing a chapter, let's say on dealing with Katie's first year at Clarkson, I would, get a word file and I would literally cut and paste into it all this one word file, all the materials relating to that. I would know I would need to use that chapter. So it would be, you know, clips relating to a couple specific events at Clarkson. Um, I would put in, you know, the portions of the transcripts from talking to her friends about what it was like at Clarkson. So it was all in like a single word file that I could sort of, juggle around and organize. And when I finished, I would have a word file that was, that was all the material I needed, even in kind of the order that I thought I would need it. And it was really a matter of kind of going from there over to, to a word file and, and write it up in, in my own words and being able to quote from the material if I needed or whatever. Um, and so I would, you know, when I was writing, I would, I might write for an hour or two, but I would, I might spend two more hours just uh, organizing the material necessary for that chapter or for a coming chapter. Cause after, you know, after an hour or two of writing, you know, you're, it's kind of a losing proposition for me, at least um, just to keep the focus up and you need to be, you know, excited about it or whatever. Um, and, and the other thing I did was my poor wife, you know, I would, you know, I, I would constantly be telling her this story. And, and if I found something that I thought was interesting or whatever, and by the time, you know, I had the first draft written, I think she could have written the book, you know, it was, <laughs> it was so much, you know, but it, it was really, you know, I explained it to her, you know, and when I wrote my, before the, my first rough draft before the first draft, it was up. I would print out the pages and I would give it to her. And I'd say, I really wasn't looking for her to edit or even critique it. I just needed somebody. I needed that motivation to say, okay, um, I'm now I'm writing for her. I'm just giving her the page. And she would read it through, not say anything, but every it, it sort of made me feel like, that motivation. Cause now I could, I had like, I was sharing the story with someone else. And um, at the end of the day, I would, it was a real motivation just to say, okay, can I get out another chapter to, to share with my wife? 
Uh, and that would have been, like I said, I would in June of 2020, I had the first draft, but I would say, you know, even as far back as, you know, the previous September, I was, you know, I would come out with a chapter and I would just give it to her. And um, so she read, she read the, the, all those individual rough, rough first draft. Mm. And then she would read the, the final first draft. <laughs> and then she read um, the proof of the book. And then she read the book once it was published. So I think she, like I said, she probably knows it as well as I do now. And, and um, I think, we, you know, if you're lucky, you've got somebody in your life who's willing to do that for you. I say she she must be sick of it by now. <laughs> uh, you would think, you know, and and I, I think she's probably sick of me telling the story. You know, like <laughs> you know, so you sit around. It's funny, and I can't, you know, I'm sort of looking at other books to, you know, have kind of moved on to my next project, and already I begin to share some of those things, and, um, you know, it's funny to, um she's already, you know, familiar with that. And I can, I can sense that sometimes the eyes glaze over a little bit, but, um, you know, she's, if, like I said, you're lucky if you find somebody who in your life, who's willing to do that for you. Like Bill, this is your project. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, I think when you do something like this, you know, I mean, even my kids were pulled into a little bit, you know, my son went to Clarkson. So, um, you know, he had a vested interest in what I was writing. Uh, and I provided him with some early drafts. Uh, my daughter, um, you know, I would spend a lot of time talking to her about the story. And you, so just telling somebody the story um, gets, you can kind of get a feel of what, works and what doesn't you know what what is um there's i have a friend who uh i went worked at the post standards name is kevin highland and he was a copier we worked on the copy desk together for several years and uh we i would go over and i would we over coffee at mcdonald's i'd talk about this book about katie and one of the things i said to him one day was um i'm sure that that Brian McCarthy, when he, um, when he uh, decided to attack Katie in a darkened corner outside Walk Arena, um, never imagined that that uh, you know he could, he had picked a victim whose mother would spend the rest of her life seeing that he never again saw the light of day, and Kevin was like, you got to say that in the book, you know, got to put it in, you know, and I work, I've kind of struggled with the wording of it, but that ended up being the end of one of the chapters um, where, uh, you know, where we're talking about, you know, as she's kind of thinking ahead to the, to the parole process. And there really was the case is that this, you know, a lot of families don't get involved in, um, you know, the parole process, the victims' families, either that, you know, it's too painful or, uh, 
you know, uh, they've passed away or maybe they had some issues themselves in the criminal justice system. And so uh, he, he definitely, this is an unusual family to be as involved as they were in the system. So talking over a book is important if you can find somebody to do that because you'll you'll discover that uh you know what kinds of things make sense and don't make sense the way you're explaining it when's it done when's it time to when's it time to okay it doesn't need another round or maybe it needs another round but I'm not going to do it when's it time to just get the thing shipped um, that's important to set kind of a deadline for yourself that you'll, I knew, uh, I said January 16th, I think it was of this year is, and I set that in November and I still had work left to do. And once you've got, <laughs> once you've set up that, um, publication date, um, you, uh, and there were some places like when you set up your ISBN number and different things where you, you put a date on it. Um, that's it, you know? So I was right up to the last, that several days before I had to get the, the final version uploaded to Amazon and to Ingram. Um, I was making, you know, I had, I was finding little typos or I had, people found it things. And so right up to the last minute. So I think the key is, is to establish a deadline for yourself. I mean, I think that's a classic journalism kind of thing to do anyways is, um, I mean, we, you have that even now, Josh, where, you know, you need to, um, sometimes you, you, you've got to, you've, it's got to go up. It's got to be available. It's got to go public. And, you know, you just do the best you can and, and get it up there. And, and the the nice thing about self-publishing, too, is if you mess up and you got to, you know, you notice something up to the fact, you can go back and you can you can uh, update. And yeah. if it's a print on demand that, yeah, the, the ones out there that are already sold, there's nothing you can do about it. But um, you don't have 10,000 waiting to be sold with the, <laughs> that info. Right. And, and that's that's the great, you know print on demand is the downside of that is um it you know it, it takes a you know i can't immediately ship out you know 100 books to barnes and noble or whatever uh if they want the book they have to put in an order with ingram and ingram will may take five you know seven days or something to get them copies so um but the good thing like you said yeah is that you just don't have 10,000 books sitting around in your house or in your some warehouse somewhere waiting to be shipped. And, and if there's a major problem with it, you know, where you have to destroy the books, you're really, uh, oh. really in trouble. <laughs> That's a scary thought right there. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, my the years ago, I did a book about um, the Simpsons TV show. And, mm-hmm. and this was before the whole, you know, print on demand and self-publishing kind of thing. And so I, I self-published my book, but I ordered like three, 4,000 copies of the book because essentially the first copy costs, you know, $2,000, you know, and every copy after that is like 
25 cents or whatever. So, or a buck. And so, you know, you can, I think at the time, let's say it, it was like 3000 to print a thousand books. It was 4,000 to print, you know, um, 5,000 books or something like that. Mm. So you buy, and then you're stuck with like, you know, huge amounts of books that don't necessarily sell. Um, and so the print on demand works out really well. And, and, uh, so it's really a, um, you know, if, if, if I were, if somebody is interested in writing a book or whatever, um, it's, it's a really, you even, you know, if you just want to have something out there that, you know, that is kind of permanent in the, uh, in, as a book out there, you know, even if you're only going to sell a hundred copies, it's still worth it, you know? And, 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 uh, if, if you've got a good story to tell, um, or you've, you know, got, a uh, information that, that is, you know, perfect for that format, um, uh, there's not a better time to be, uh, to be writing. Are you uh, ready to talk about your next couple of projects or? Um, only generally. Um, I, I, one of the things I, I, I try to do is say, why am I the person who's writing this? Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Katie book, it was, you know, I was from Potsdam. I live in the Syracuse area now. Um, and those were, you know, where the victim and the killer lived. So those were, um, uh, and obviously, I'm, I've always been interested in true crime. So I kind of feel like there was a logical reason for doing that. Same with my dad's memoir, obviously. In the case of Ken Puckett, I think that was more, um, you know, uh, I had been on this cruise and, and I recognized that, that this is somebody whose story should be told. Um, so the the next book I'm looking at is is on uh, uh, someone who a historical figure in Syracuse involved in a a criminal case. Um, I want to say anything more about it now, only because um, sometimes you need the flexibility of like saying, you know, maybe I'm going to backburn that for a while. Maybe I'm not going to do it. I've had. Um, I've got a couple others that I've been working on for years. One is about uh, from the 1980s when uh, there were a couple inmates at uh, Auburn Correctional Facility who were uh, diagnosed with AIDS back in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And I spent, you know, two or three years interviewing them and not understanding then how to, to organize material. It was just overwhelming. And I never ended up, uh, I wrote a lot of draft chapters, but never pulled it all together. And so I may end up finishing that up at some point. Um, I've also thought about um, writing a a biography of Dick Clark, uh, you know, of American bandstand fame. Uh, Dick Clark was, uh, went to Syracuse University and uh, he worked in Syracuse radio uh, for a time. Um, and I had the opportunity, uh, as a, I was the TV writer for the post standard for many years. 
and I had the opportunity to interview him seven, eight different times um, and talk. So the book really would focus in on um, his life before uh, bandstand, um, talking about Syracuse. I interviewed people who were who knew him when he worked in Syracuse radio and, and, uh, but, um, I haven't been, you know, he, he had an interesting life because he, his brother was killed during world war two. And it was, uh, kind of a defining, uh, moment in his life. And really, um, I think, you know, you taught, you asked about a mission in in life. Um, I think his mission in life was to make his, brother proud and uh um i think he was driven as much um to you know even to show his own parents you know that because his older brother was was his hero you know and uh he was everything dick clark kind of wanted to be when he grew up and uh and suddenly when his brother was gone he was the person who um, you know, he was the, the family's, you know, last, uh, um, last child. He was the only child left. And I think he, you know, that, that story to me, um, interests me, but I wasn't, I'm not really sure there's enough there and, and all the things that he did when, you know, getting into radio and, and the, all these influences on his life. I'm not sure there's enough for a book there, um, but I've got a lot of material gathered. So I've been kind of struck. I mean, I've off and on, I've worked on that for like 10 years. So it was a long answer to a short question. Well, that's why, that's why I like this, this format. We don't have to, uh, yeah. We don't have to get it in in, in twelve inches. <laughs> you you have you have long focus on your projects, so let's. Uh... Yeah, well, it, um, I, you know, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, I, 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 I have a long attention span, but I also have, you know, I, I tend to like have a lot of different things that <laughs> that interest you and you, you just sort of go, Oh, that would be interesting. And then you decide, no, no, you can't, you know, <laughs> open up that, uh, you know, there, there's a, there's a story about, um, about somebody who, uh, without getting into it, but there's somebody in Syracuse that, that I, I, it's a real character, you know, and uh, he passed away several years ago. And I thought mm, that would be, he would be an interesting subject for a book. And, um, but then you go, you know, there's a, there's so much work each book to, to go through that, uh, um, you know, that oh, there was another, there was, there was one, I, I actually started gathering research material on it 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and then about two years ago, there was an article in the, uh, on Syracuse.com that said that uh, that there was somebody else who's writing the same same focus on the same story. And so um, I kind of said, well, I don't know if I want to do that now. You know, if mm-hmm. somebody's already, I had gathered all the research material about for this story. And, and then I find that somebody else is already 
working on a book about the same subject. So, um, which hasn't been published yet. Maybe that person, you know, like a lot of us just decided, you know, they didn't have enough there to do that. But, um, but it, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, if, if you're connected to the world, there are a lot of subjects that you'll be interested in. And the great thing about a book is that it gives you a kind of license to, to explore it as, as deeply as you, you, you can tolerate it. And, uh, you know, there years ago when I was one of the reporters, I covered the Billy Graham crusade when it came to the carrier dome in mm-hmm. Syracuse and, um, it's hard to imagine these days with the short staffs at, at in newspapers and whatever, but they gave me like a month or two to prepare for, for the coverage for that. And I actually flew out to Billy Graham headquarters in Minnesota and I interviewed Billy Graham on the phone and I interviewed just all these different people who were involved in it and was able to, to have, you know, read several books, you know, I had the time to read books about him and his history. And I just loved it. It was just, I was able to just throw myself, immerse myself into this life of this amazing man. And, and, um, it was really, a uh, one of the few times as a reporter that you're able to get that, you know, cause the paper wanted, you know, it was a big story for the paper and they were willing to cut me loose from everything else for a couple of months to not only prepare for the, the advanced stories, but then to cover the crusade every night, you know, during the, and I think out of it, I think we wrote like 30 stories or whatever. So it was almost like a amount of material and research in terms of writing a book. So you're bored yet? Am I what yet? Are you bored yet with all your no. projects? With uh, when I'm working now? No, yeah. no. I, you know, it's uh, like I said. It's a it's 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 a history piece, and the hard part of it is going to be that I don't think anyone is still around who was involved in it mm-hmm. and uh, directly, you know, and uh, so. Uh, that always gives a consideration when you decide to to write, particularly a nonfiction book, um, you know, where you're writing a, a, a biography or you're writing a, um, you know, uh, a story about events that occurred, like a true crime book or whatever. You know, you uh, you're limited by you know who is still around and who is willing to talk to you and. In the case of the Katie book, you know, the police chief who was head of the Potsdam Police Department at the time, he passed away and a number of other people have either passed on or are just really, you know, not capable of talking anymore. I mean, there were some people who I contacted. Uh, I had one person who was a Clarkson official back in the 1980s, and I contacted him and said I wanted to talk to him about this, and he he said, great. And we set up an interview and then he emailed me back a very curt note saying, I don't want to talk about this. That was it. And so um, there's some people, you know, who were involved in it just um, didn't want to talk. And, and for whatever reason, whether either it was too painful or just that um, 
they just didn't trust I would do the do it in a right way or or whatever. So um, there were a number of people I contacted. I just didn't hear back from. I you know I tried, including Clarkson of all places. I'd contacted them through the public relations office looking to get a statement on current security on campus. And they, you know, I emailed, didn't hear, emailed, didn't hear. So I called and got a voicemail and then somebody else called me back and they wanted to know what I was doing. And then they said they would get back to me and they never did. And then I tried again and you get one of those, the runaround kind of thing. And uh, so, so I ended up, you know, in the, in the epilogue talking about current security, I had to rely on the annual security report that Clarkson's required to file under federal law now. Um, and, you know, use that. It was an, it wouldn't have been a good and as having someone from the university tell me about what they're doing, but um, you know, you, you try to do the best you can on that. And sometimes people don't, people don't really want to, um, you know, for whatever reason, don't want to cooperate with that. Not to, you know, open up a whole you know, new line of conversation, but this is probably a case that had, you know, a big, you know, a big effect on campus security across the country. I, I was in college about eight years, nine years, 1994. So eight, nine years after after this, and yeah, I went to UMass Amherst, which is a very large campus. And by that time, they had good lighting. They had call boxes everywhere. Uh, you, know, you could you know, call the other rooms, or you could call emergency. All the parking lots had emergency call boxes. You know, it was before cell phones, so you know, nobody you know, nobody was carrying those around really. But uh, you could always you know, even just if if you could run your know, 30 yards in any direction, you could hit a button and call campus security and they'd know which call box you were at. Right. Uh, and they didn't have any of that at, at uh, Clarkson. At that know, time, but I, I bet over the next few years, they, they, they did. Installing they, it. they beefed up a lot of the stuff right after this happened. Um and I'm sure it's training too, because and you know we don't have to talk about the training those security guards got, but um, you know they 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 were essentially mall cops. Uh. They yeah they called them night watchmen, but they considered themselves security. So um, and uh, but yeah the the Clarkson really did have to beef up, and and you were talking about the impact that this had nationally. They um, Around the same time, um, at uh, I believe it was uh, in Pennsylvania's, um, I think maybe Lafayette College was, but there was a um, a girl, uh, Jean Cleary, who was murdered on campus, and her family began a an effort that uh, to to require college campuses to to not only improve security but also to to uh, report crime statistics publicly share with, with uh, students and, and parents so that people who are looking at a campus can judge for themselves, whether it's a safe place or not. 
and Katie, Katie's family was involved in that and uh, um, worked with the Cleary family in order to to uh, lobby lawmakers to pass legislation that would require that. And also, um, you know, speaking to, to, to campuses and, you know, encouraging students to, to be safe on campus. And so, yeah, Katie's murder, you know, she, they were, uh, the family afterwards was particularly her mother was very much involved in, in uh, efforts to improve campus safety around the country. And, and as I say in the book that, um, you know, anybody who's gone to college at Clarkson since this incident kind of owes a, uh, some debt to the Katie's parents for, for, uh, holding Clarkson's feet to the fire and to, and to pushing them. They, they reached a, they had sued the, the university over Katie's death. And one of the terms of the settlement was that Clarkson had to do some specific things to improve campus security, um, which all of them seem pretty basic now. But at the time, it, this was not something that they uh, they did. Uh, they were doing, and I mean things like um, adequate lighting on campus. Um, she she had walked along an area where you know it was a path that that. A lot of students took a shortcut and they're just, there was not a lot of lighting. They didn't have, they only had two security guards uh, working that night. And one of them was hired to guard computers inside the ice hockey arena. And the other was going around checking doors to see if they were locked or not. And when they came across seeing Katie being attacked, um, they thought it was, a she was being uh in a consensual sexual romp with, with some guy and they drove away twice before they finally recognized that, that uh, when the guy was gone, that she's laying there beaten and bloody. And uh, they finally, you know, called the police then. Um, And I think a lot of it, you know, you talk about training and things, a lot of the, the improvements that have occurred at Clarkson since then is to train the people on campus um, to do better job of recognizing when something, you know, truly bad is happening. And, and uh, they didn't even have at the time, Clarkson didn't even have a, a direct radio link uh, between security guards and the Potsdam police department. So when Katie was, at, they finally recognized she was attacked. The guy had to run way back inside the arena and phone the police department to get them to to send somebody in an ambulance and police officers to the scene. Um, and that's since been fixed. They now have direct radio between people on security and, and the Potsdam Police Department. And like you said, one of the guys was just was hired to watch computers. <laughs> yeah, they, they definitely he, were spending. What do you know about public safety, really? He was, yeah, they were spending a lot. I mean, they were willing to spend money to hire somebody to, to guard, you know, a million dollars worth of computers, but um, they seemed reluctant to spend money to ensure student safety. Um, And maybe that's, you know, if you talk about why Clarkson didn't want to, didn't want to cooperate with this book. I think that's probably, you know, what, what can you say now about that? It's, 
it's 35 years ago. They've taken steps since then to improve. Um, it was not their proudest moment as a college campus. And probably nobody's still working who is there, right? They're all you know, probably much. Some younger professors, but mostly administration be retired by now. Yeah. The only person the actually the president of the college is one of the few people who or the president of the university is one of the few people that was employed on campus uh, back in the eighties, but he was a professor then. And um, you know, uh, but you're right. You know, I mean, anybody who was over 30 at the time is probably retired now. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, it, I, you can buy the book at Amazon and, and wherever books are sold for the most part, we'll have a link on the show notes. Where do you, uh, do you hang out online at all? Where can people find you? Um, they can find me at williamlarue.com. And uh, there's contact information there. Um, that's probably the best way to, to reach me. And um, I also have a Facebook page for Chestnut Heights Publishing. And uh, you can also reach me through there. And uh, yeah, the, the book is, is pretty much, it's an online exclusive. You can find every from Amazon to Barnes and Noble and, um, you can download the uh, the ebook from Apple Books and uh, and Google Play. Uh, it's it's so it's you know it's pretty widely available there and and hopefully it's uh, you know you hope that something like this makes a difference and the reaction I've gotten from people who live up in the Potsdam area has been very positive. I was a little worried, you know, that some of them would see it as a, uh, even though I grew up there is seeing it as, as somebody attempting to, you know, put a black mark on, on Potsdam. Um, but it hasn't been that way. I think most people, the, the, the reaction all I've gotten has been wholly positive to the book. And, and I think that there's a sense that, that, um, you know, without trying to tell the story, in a in an interesting fashion, but without being s- sensational about it, and I, you know, I think uh, people there, you know, you know, appreciate that. You know, there are too many true kind books. You know, are kind of the, you know, how how graphic can we get, or or, uh, you know, let's look at uh, the most sensational aspects of this. And one of the things I tried to do in the book, without being, um, without hiding the truth from what happened is to, to not, you know, not to sensationalize what, you know, was, it was an event that was, you know, very traumatic, not only to the family of Katie Welker, but to the entire Potsdam community. And the reaction I got from people there is that that was something that they really, you know, they appreciate a lot. So, um, so this is, you know, it's, this has changed my life in a lot of ways. One of the things I I did when I posted a note on Facebook announcing the book was being published, I said, you know, in the 40 years I've been a journalist, this is the most important thing I've ever written. And I don't think that's hyperbole. It really, it it was really the most important thing I've ever done, which is, you know, illuminate a, a story that, that 
really is in my hometown and uh, it continues to, to resonate and deals with an issue that is not uh, often tackled, which is, you know, the rights and the experiences of a family of, of a, of a murder victim um, and how the parole process um, exacerbates. Yeah. That was particularly interesting, especially in a state like New York where it's every two years, you know, so it's as soon as one cycle is over, you're right back in it. And the the Facebook page they have for it really kind of, uh, you can you you can read the you can read the read the pain and the activism in it. Yeah, it is really, you know, and, and the most gratifying thing about this whole thing is that the family, um, you know, that obviously they were nervous about you know some somebody that they didn't know very well coming in and telling their story, and they seem to be very happy with with the way the book came out, and um, you know, obviously they're hoping that it that uh that the parole board reads it and you know influences their decision um i'm just hoping that uh you know that anybody who reads the book will will understand what the family has gone through and and uh, and hopefully have a better understanding of the way our criminal justice system works yeah for sure. Well, again, congratulations on the book. I hope it does well for you. I, I hope, uh, you know, given the amount of documentary content, video content that's been produced, uh, particularly by the streaming services lately, that uh, somebody thinks to option this because uh, I think it would make a, a very interesting three or four part uh, miniseries. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, you always think about that thing in the back of your mind. And I'm thinking, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, you think about it is that the, um, there is no finality to this. Right. Um, and that kind of works against anything like, you know, any, uh, TV show that there is in, in the, there isn't a bittersweet ending to this book in the sense that, you know, the family finally hopes, believes through the parole system that they've gotten some measure of justice that was lacking. They believe in the, in the prosecution of the case and, and the, the, the judicial aspect of it. Um, the fact that the parole board has denied Brian McCarthy parole six times and that during the last parole hearing that they, uh, he was uh, admonished by the parole board um, for essentially lying to them. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that the, there is a, a sense that maybe there can be some justice for Katie. And, uh, but like I say in the book, it's almost like movie Groundhog Day. You know, uh, every two years they go through the same thing, a little bit different every time, but essentially um, they're having to live with this same process um, over and over again. And, and um, you know, maybe that's the, that's the story more than anything else. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Well, and thank uh, you for inviting me. I, I had a great time and, and, 
you know, I appreciate very much uh, your interest in this because, and I, and I like, you know, talking about the process of, of writing books because it transcends this particular book. Um, And hopefully other people, you know, can realize that, that, you know, that this is something that they can do themselves and, and, uh, you know, you don't need to have Simon and Schuster or Random House or whatever uh, behind your book. You can get your story out there. And, uh, um, you know, if you, if you're very fortunate, then, you know, maybe you'll make back what you invested in it, you know, for, uh, for the book. And, and if, if you're not, then you've, you've still got something that hopefully you can hold in your hands and, and uh, maybe change, change, leave the world a little better uh, because you were in it. Yes, sir. Thank you. You have a great rest of your day. You too. And it was great talking to you again. And thank you very much, both of you for uh, inviting me. You're welcome. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening. Show notes and more at jkwdpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends. And we will see you next week. A Better Humanhood Production.